Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who came, saw, and saw it again until they ran out of wood. Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, it's Wood Talk number 445 for September 10th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to talk about miter saw fences, clean up between finished coats, thousand cankers disease, stinky shellac, and then a bunch of other things because we've got still a ton of voicemails from our time off. So we're going to pound through it all, skip right to the good stuff. So before we get into our, our voicemails and a couple emails we have here, I wanted to talk to you guys about miter saw fences. So anyone who's followed me on Instagram knows that this turned into a little debacle and I don't know what it is, but sometimes things come out of my mouth and sometimes those, those things that come out seem to, I don't know, maybe anger other people or, or, or concern other people. So I, I, I made this uh, sort of claim that I'm not going to be doing a fence on my miter saw station and that I felt that fences didn't really make any sense on that particular tool that they're completely unnecessary and just get in the way. So because, um, uh, you guys know, uh, 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 Jay, Jay Bates, right? He, uh, he's got <laughs> mm-hmm. a, a miter station he did on YouTube quite a while ago. Uh, that's an absolutely gorgeous miter station and does a fantastic job. Well, people came to him going like, Hey, look at this. Look at Mark said, Hey, look, look at this. Hey, look, go get him. Go get him. Look what Mark said. Yeah, go get him. And, uh, <laughs> And so Jay is like, he had a post like basically a rebuttal to defend why he has a, a flipping fence on his miter saw station. I'm like, thank you, internet. This is, this is what it's all about. Um, but anyway, Jay's a cool dude. I don't think there's any, you know, there's nothing between us that, that, you know, would cause us to be angry at each other. It's just, he likes a fence and I don't. Um, so I wanted to, to talk a little bit about this and maybe hear feedback from folks at home. If you have a miter saw fence, Why? And, uh, and why do you find it more useful than simply putting like a T track in the horizontal surface and putting a stop in that? So I'm curious, uh, I know Shannon considered the fact that you don't really need a fence the whole length. Yes, exactly. And I think that's part of the problem. I don't think people have actually sat down and thought about 
Do I really need one? What is it doing for me? Should it even be there? I think a lot of people just build one because when you look up miter saw station, what do you see? And when you look up like these portable units, um, they all have fences on them. So why would I not make a fence? But if you think about it critically, I cannot find a solid argument for why you would want one there in the first place. So what I'm asking you guys, and Shannon, I know you've used the miter saw before, even though you may not have one anymore. <laughs> do you have any justification at all even if it's devil's advocate sort of thing, reason why you would want a vertical fence on a miter saw station. The only thing that I used it for was a way of which to attach a stop. Right. So if I were making repeated cuts of the same length, I had one of those Craig flip stop dealies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are Um, Actually, actually, Diami owns it now. I sold it to him. And um, that's, that's... what it was there for. The fence didn't, like, it wasn't a reference surface. Yeah. It was a vehicle that the little flip stop could slide up and down, and it had a ruler on top. And it was calibrated so that it was accurate. And I could slide it down, lock it in at 23 and 97, 128s, and I could make a cut. And everything would butt up against that, and I would make a cut over and over again. The funny thing is, is I stopped using that because I wasn't using my miter saw as a precision cross-cutting tool anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just, it, it didn't make sense. Now, if, if the work that I was doing, like say I'm working in a frame shop or something and I have a lot of narrow parts, a miter saw would be outstanding for that. But the minute I change, you know, angles and things, that measurement kind of got thrown off and I was working mm-hmm. towards a line more than anything else. So the stop became less relevant. So... No, I, I I agree with you. I don't think the defense is necessary other than a vehicle with which to clamp your stop to. Right, which you can do without that. You can have a stop. You can even have a flip stop. That's the other thing. A lot of people are like, well, I can't use a flip stop. It's like, yes, you can. You just have to, you might have to modify the flip stop. Most flip stops are like a right angle, right? Uh, because they have to, to flip down and drop vertically in front of the fence. Um, so if you just think about having the flip stop, just be a straight piece of material, you can make your own, um, and just kind of cobble something together with a T track and a bolt and it would work just fine. So if the stop is the only argument, it's like you could, you could still do that another way. Uh, here's the interesting thing that came out of this is people going, well, why do you need a miter saw anyway? <laughs> so, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's so, where that went? Yeah, like immediately. They're like, well, let, let justify, you know, smart pants. Justify why you even need a miter saw in the first place. <laughs> you could just use a jigsaw to do all your rough cutting. You don't need a miter oh, saw. And I'm like, well, man. all right, that may be true. I get you. I get where you're going with that. But a miter saw is way faster at chopping boards down, you know, if I'm doing rough cutting with that thing. And plus, I like to have it because sometimes... I don't know. I Nicole might go, I want crown molding in this room. And I'll go, oh, fine. And then I'll go, you know, set my miter saw up for crown molding. So you get, you know, it's a tool that's nice to have for various things. Uh, so before we leave this topic, Matt, anything, um, anything you, you can add or argument you could provide for in favor of offense? No. No. Okay. Not really. Yeah, I'm only doing this to be as fair as possible. So please, if you have a real good solid justification for why a fence is necessary. I want to hear it because I can't think of one and I'm, v- I'm just very curious and I, 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 I like can't, to, I can't imagine a situation where you actually need that much reference length. Right. Maybe if you were doing, I don't, I was like, maybe like on a radial arm saw when you switch to like ripping mode and you want more fence for yeah. doing rip cuts or something, but that's not a miter saw then. Well, this yeah, might, but even then, a radial arm saw is a bigger tool itself. So, like the fence right up close to yeah, it, that's true. that may be bigger, 
right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. you got more um, reference built in. No, I mean, and that was my biggest issue with the miter saw in that that fence station. Like, I needed to have all this infeed and outfeed support. It took off one whole wall of my shop, mm-hmm. which is why it was the very first power tool I sold when yeah. I started down the hand tool thing. Like, I hung on to a table saw and joiner bandsaw like three years longer than I hung on to the miter saw because it took up so much dang room. If only Mark had said I didn't need a fence back then, I should have said it sooner. Well, <laughs> no, my, no, it was a piece of crap craftsman. I probably still would have gotten rid of it. But well, my first yeah, attempt I mean, at a miter saw station did have a fence, and I did it a very different way, but this is just something over time you just kind of realize, and I'm sure I've heard someone else say that at some point, and then it just over time with experience stuck with me. Um, you know, interestingly, this this might be something, Matt, that, that would be an issue for you, Uh a gentleman by the name of Tim Fuller. You can find him on Instagram and Facebook, I think. Uh, Tim's Tim's a good dude. He he sent me a picture of him cutting a slab. He wanted to cut the edge of a slab off, and of course, it had a you know uneven edge because it's a natural edge. Something you would never even be able to do with the miter saw if you didn't have the short fence that just comes with it. If you had a long fence outside, it would never work there. You wouldn't be able to get that cut done. You know, so if you're working with um, live edge boards and things like that, uh, a long fence is actually going to be a big problem for you. So yeah, something to think about. Mm. Cool. I like doing ha. stuff like this. We should do stuff like this more often. Shaking it up. Yeah, like talk about st- like our justification for why we have a certain setup and then try to tear each other down. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah, this sounds real fun for me. <laughs> Come on, it'll be fun. Let me make fun of you, Matt. Yeah. Okay. That sounds like uh, every day of my life. So yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I love it. All right. So uh, what do you say we get into some of these voicemails we have sitting here stinking up my inbox? Um, okay. So Nathan has a, speaking of stinking, um, Nathan has a question about shellac smell. Hey guys, this is Nate calling uh, again from the West coast. I called a couple weeks ago about a shellac question and now I have another one. I finished a couple end tables over the last few years and worked my way up to a a big shaker, like chimney cabinet thing. I finished it with shellac too, because that's kind of all I know how to do. And I finished the inside. Now, ironically, last show, we just talked about finishes and people sticking with a finish that works and that they know how to use. And here's a perfect example is Nathan is like, I don't know why I used it. I used it because that's what I use. (laughs) So anyway, thought it was relevant like one coat of shellac and the stinkiness has not gone away it still kind of stinks like our towels kind of stink in not a pleasant way you open up the door and it has a noticeable smell um i tried i don't know just leaving it open for weeks at a time thinking that the smell would dissipate over a while but it's still kind of there so did i commit some mortal sin i knew or uh, i'd read about um, oil finishes being terrible for inside cabinets but i didn't know that about shellac i thought that was a very safe one for stinkiness but um, anyway let me know have you experienced shellac inside enclosed surfaces being stinky so let's go to our resident shellac expert shannon Sounds been, like bad shellac. I mean, like expired shellac. I mean, because the problem with when shellac gets older is it doesn't really harden, um, and it doesn't, and actually, it doesn't really dissolve fully when you add the alcohol to it. If it's an older flake, um, or if it's like a pre-mixed shellac and it gets really old, it just stays tacky for a super long time. Um, that sounds like he's got an expired product. 
That would be my guess. Well, it's interesting because usually um, shellac is one of those that we, you know, almost knee-jerk reaction. Someone goes, I'm finishing a dresser and what do I use on the inside? And we say, oh, you could use shellac or a water-based finish, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's yeah. like, it sounds like this is backfiring. I mean, because it, because it's alcohol-based, that's going, that's the the stinkiness, right? You know, the solvent that's flashing off and the, the resin that's left over as it's curing, um, that itself, shellac doesn't really have a smell to it. You know, the, the, the little flakes, the stuff that's coming off the bugs doesn't really have much of a smell to it. It's the alcohol that's making it, um, to, to quote stinky, (laughs) the stinkiness is from the alcohol itself. So if it is like, if the shellac itself is old and it's not allowing that, that solvent to kind of come out of solution for lack of a better term, it would still have some stinkiness to it. That would be my thought. It's just, so I wonder if maybe get some fresh shellac, if he can sort of, you know, verify that, that this stuff may have been old um, and maybe recode it once with some fresh stuff and see if that improves the situation. Cause most people will, will say, yeah, it, it, as long as it uh, flashes off and once it cures, it's usually pretty odorless at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And shellac is supposed to be a universal binder. Like anything, it will, anything will stick to it. So it's a great primer code, right? So ideally he ought to be able to recode it. I mean, that's what, like when you buy paint, that's like meant to be like cigarette blocking smells. And like, if you've ever had like a a mildew problem or whatever, Mm -hmm. you you put down a paint that's meant to block those odors. It's a shellac based paint, right? That's what it does. So ideally he ought to be able to recode it with a, a, a fresh can of shellac. Um, and he should be okay, but yeah, let I us mean, know. Nathan. That's assuming that's assuming that we're on the right track with it being an expired shellac. Sure, or maybe brand or you know a commercial brand, and who knows exactly what was in that mix. Um, I don't know, but tr- try it with something fresh. See if that helps. <laughs> right, it was shellac in quotes. Shellac, it's shellacish. <laughs> All natural air quote <laughs> <Yeah>. shellac. <laughs> and you know what? Consider Nathan, if you haven't done this, uh, buying flakes and making your own. If you're buying this stuff, um, you know, manufactured commercial product. Try mixing your own. You might uh, get better results with it. Okay, Eli has a question about rough sawn lumber. Hi, Mark, Shannon, Matt. First, I want to say uh, thank you for creating a entertaining and sometimes educational show, but definitely always entertaining, <laughs> especially when you get off topic on rants about how stupid people are and how insignificant they really are and the greater scheme of marketing. Anyway, I do have a question. I'm, uh, yeah. My name is Eli from Southwest Virginia. That is Southwest Virginia, not South West Virginia. So we can get the hillbilly thing out of the way with the, uh, I have all my teeth. My wife has all her teeth and we aren't even remotely related. So my wow. question is my father wow. was a forester and collected a bunch of unique boards. So the other day I came home and my barn is, full of lumber that's been air drying for 30 years, all rough cut, random wits, links, neat stacks, but I don't know what they are. And my wife decided she wanted some barn wood to make a sign. So she went out to the barn and got some wood and chopped up some random six, 10 and 12 inch links of these different boards and painted on them and made some nice little signs. But I kind of, got a little frustrated when i saw that one of the two boards she had chopped up was a walnut and the other was a sassafras so what is a good resource or good way of going about identifying 
rough sawn lumber when you have no idea what the boards might be. My father was a uh, a forester, not a logger, but actually a forester. He marked timber stands all over in West Virginia, huge timber stands, and he would occasionally pick out trees, have them taken to a sawmill, sawn up, and buy them off the sawmill. And so any tree that he brought back is not something, not a not an oak or um, anything like that. It would be some kind of unique but native or maybe non-native, but grows in southern Appalachian Mountains. And it would be something different, like sassafras logs. I, I know I have sassafras boards because I know what the smell is, but I didn't even know sassafras made a tree. And I have polonia because, you know, where else can you find a board that weighs like next to nothing and a big, thick board? And walnut's easy to identify. But what's a good resource for going about trying to figure out what some of these rough sawn air dried stacks of lumber might be. I know it has to be something of value. Like my bathroom is heart cherry boards and I mean like the heart of the tree and the wall in the living room is heart poplar. So it's not as easy as just saying, Oh, that's poplar. Well no, it's a hundred percent heartwood, so it's a different color, even though that one I can identify. So I guess it's mostly maybe to Matt and Shannon as to how would you identify old boards? Uh, thank you for your time and continue to make a great show. All right. So rough sawn lumber. I know a guy who deals a lot with rough sawn lumber, Matt, you, you have What's any up? tricks? Uh, hey, how's it going? <laughs> um, do you have any tricks for how you determine this without like cutting into the wood? That's kind of the thing you might want to do or just like skip plane something a little bit. If it's been sitting out for 30 years and it's rough sawn, it's probably grayed a little bit. Maybe it's a little kind of dirty looking. So even just a quick skip plane or even with a block plane, just to kind of expose some of the color of the wood, that might give you a better idea of what you're dealing with more on a color palette scale. And then from there, it's kind of nice that you're just limited to just whatever's going to be growing in that area. So depending on how much exposure you have to those species is going to be, it's kind of going to determine how easy it's going to be to determine what exactly you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Um, It could just come down to maybe even going around and finding some samples of things to compare against if you really have no idea. Or if you happen to have someone who just happens to know a lot about the domestic species in that area and what they look like rough sawn or even uh, plain, bring them out, give them a beer and you guys can look through a stack of wood and try to figure out what things are. That's a, uh, I don't know, probably the best way to so find somebody. It's interesting that like wood tends to all look the same. Like once it's been out and weathered for a period of time, <laughs> it kind of all looks the same. You, you you do have to get down beyond that layer because it obscures the grain, obscures the color. Uh, and if there's no bark or anything that's telltale for people who know their trees, it becomes really difficult to tell what that stuff is without exposing some fresh wood. Yeah. And you know, in any of the like wood ID books, websites and things, they all show that swatch and it's a planed piece. Like it's not a rough sawn board in (laughs) the picture, you know? And I mean, you can walk around our lumber yard it's all rough sawn material. And you know, you walk into the African shed and it's all reddish wood. 
I mean, you look at that and you go, I don't know. <laughs> all looks the same to me. Is that Udily? You know how I know that's Udily? Because the tag on the end says Udily. <laughs> so, yeah, you got to you gotta plane it. I mean, you got to get a good look at the end grain and kind of then you can start identifying things. But again, the pictures that you're going to see, like, you know, what's the, 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 the wood ID book, the, you know, the one that the meme that always identifying wood says, yep, it's wood. Yeah. That guy, that book, he's got lots of images in there of like 10 times magnified ingrain. But the only way you're going to see that is by planing that ingrain and by planing the face and seeing what's going on in the face. They're really, and he actually, who is it? Eli. Yeah. Eli even said that, you know, with, with Poplar, he's like, well, you know, Poplar's not a good example because I can identify that one. Well, you're right. After time, you will be able to identify. I can identify Poplar in the rough. I can identify, you know, walnut and cherry and maples in the rough because after a while, you just, you, you gain that experience. You know what to look for. And you can look at a rough sawn hard maple board and differentiate it from a rough sawn soft maple board. There's little things, but, you know, it just comes from experience, frankly. Matt, are you any good at bark? Can you identify trees from bark? Yeah, I'm better at that. Oh, terrible. The bark all looks exactly, I mean, unless it's like, you know, like beach, like paper bark or whatever, (laughs) but like oak, one oak to another. And I know people who can, and I'm like, you're nuts. Like, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing here? You know, well, you know, it's white oak. See how it's whiter? I'm like, no, (laughs) no, I don't. I've had people like family and friends who would say like, well, you're a woodworker. What, What kind of tree is that? I'm like. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, hold on. Let me saw it in half, and then I might be able to tell you. I might be <laughs> able to tell deciduous you. Deciduous <laughs> tree. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Cool. All right. So the next one we have here is from Ryan. Hey guys, this is Ryan with Chestnut Hill Woodworks in Maryland. First, I just want to say you guys are doing an awesome job. I love your work. Been following you for a while now, Mark. I first got into woodworking watching your router inlay video. And Matt, I've learned everything I know about chainsaw milling from you. Uh, Shannon, you're basically in my backyard, so that's cool. <laughs> this question is mainly for Matt. Matt, before you became the world-famous Harry Giggler and the face of Triton Tools, what medium did you find to be the most effective for marketing and selling your slabs? just want to see what advice you would give a hobbyist sawyer who's looking to move some timber to fuel what seems to be a never-ending tool acquisition phase. Uh, thanks for all you guys do, and I look forward to hearing the next show. Hmm. What do you say? Hmm. The answer can't be find something else to sell, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did Craigslist. I had uh, decent luck with that. After after a while, you kind of build up an actual like customer base. So. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Your actual customers will just call you directly as opposed to just looking on Craigslist for you again. Um, and then you can kind of wean yourself off of the Craigslist thing because the problem with Craigslist is people are just there looking for a deal, not necessarily looking for spending top dollar on some lumber they're looking for somebody who's trying to clear out their shed because they've been looking at this lumber for 30 years and they just want to get rid of it so you get a lot of people trying to you know barter and just kind of bring your prices down when you're like already kind of low prices anyway but once you get a decent customer base established it goes pretty quickly so when i was doing a lot of it when i bring in a load of lumber to go sell i wouldn't even unload it off the trailer because i knew it'd be sold within a day or two. So there'd no mm-hmm. point in me bringing it to the shed. I checked the weather forecast. Oh, looks like it's not going to rain. I'll leave it on the trailer. It's easier for people to grab. And then two days was gone and I have to go get some more because it sold that fast. But that took some time to get to that point where people actually were like reaching out to me and wanting to know when I'm bringing in this or that or this or whatever. And I would let them know and they'd be there and it'd be gone. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Now, funny thing is I do, um, have keywords on certain uh, selling websites like that and Facebook marketplace, for instance. And anytime I see any kind of lumber that looks like it's even remotely worth buying in the first place, it is so overpriced. And especially if it's slabs, uh, we've talked about this on the show before that like slabs are, are Oh, it's, it's transitioned so much. Like I used to sell slabs. They were 12 core cherry. Mm -hmm. Oh man. I think I sold them for like two fifty a board foot because no one would buy them at anything higher than that because who wants thick cherry that's got a live edge on it right but nowadays that's worth way more yeah it's crazy and the prices are just like there's no way what like what i remember uh when i built the rocker um and i watched charles brock's videos and he's talking about well you know if he's talking about the thickness and that if you can get this in slab form and then he's cutting all of his rocker parts from these you know beautiful walnut slabs but things mm-hmm. have changed so much since then that now that slab itself which is just a precursor material to the stuff we all use anyway <laughs> is like oh my god like i can't believe he's cutting this down and and i can't buy it in that form because of the demand that has become too expensive and that the only option for me is to just go buy some rough sawn 8 quarter and hope it's thick enough so weird. All right. So uh, let's see. <laughs> things have changed a lot in the last, like, I don't know, five, ten years or whatever. They really it's have. crazy. Well, it's funny because I still think of it, like Mark just said, as the precursor to the material that we sell. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like that should be cheaper because be we cheaper. had to go and rip the edges. <laughs> yeah. Nothing was done to it. <laughs> it's like straight off the sawmill. Like, you know, the stuff I'm selling had, you know, straight line ripped and all that stuff, you know, it, well, I'm hoping yeah, this shifts. Crazy. Like at some point, whatever it is that's in fashion with this and in vogue and people like it turns because then there's going to be an overabundance of slab stock that people just won't be able to move. And then it's like, yes, this oh, is primo I, raw material. I know how to move it. Just get my tracks out there. Zip, zip, done, sold. Sold. 12, <laughs> 12 quarter stock, baby. All right. So Rob called in and uh, he's got something, I don't know, something to do with sharpening. Hello, Shannon, Matt, and Mark. Not in that particular order. And if you're hearing this message, thanks very much, once again, for not quitting. This is Rob from Oklahoma, and I am a cheapskate. 
That's why I'm getting into woodworking so slowly, because apparently woodworking is the most expensive hobby that one could have. Huh. In fact, a year and a half ago, I sent in a question asking what I could use in lieu of a, a planer and a jointer, because I'm just too cheap and too shop space challenged to have either of those things. Well, in the meantime, I'm happy to, re to report that I have purchased a couple of user hand planes. 30 40 bucks a piece around here for, for uh, an intact plane isn't too bad. So I'm pleased with that. But now my problem is I have to sharpen them. And I also have to find a way to sharpen the chisels that I'd like to obtain next. So here's the problem I'm having. Sharpening is also expensive and also very confusing. I did try the Harbor Freight Diamond Home Plates just for giggles, and let me tell you, those things are awful. They went right back. <laughs> I do have the plate glass for Scary Sharp. Uh, I had that sitting around for like six to eight months, actually. And I finally went to the auto body shop and was shocked to learn that just five sheets of 1,000 or 2,000 grit sandpaper are like 10 bucks a pop. So clearly, Scary Sharp is not going to be the right system for this particular cheapskate going forward, if I stick with this. So here is my psychological boundary that I've, I've managed to work myself to this point, $100. Can I get a comprehensive, durable, uh, maintainable system for sharpening chisels and plane blades with 8 by 3 surfaces for $100? So far, I haven't been able to do it. Not the cheapest thing you can find are oil stones, water stones. People say you need to lap those, and everybody now is like, oh, yeah, just go buy a $180 diamond lapping plate. So that immediately brings it to like 300 for that system. I can maybe get a double-sided diamond stone for like 150 if I really work it. But I am bound and determined to hit 100 if I possibly can. Because to me, that seems reasonable. Of course, I'm not a reasonable person, clearly. But can you guys meet this challenge? $100 for a complete sharpening system for chisels and plane blades? With what? Phone call coming in in the middle of it. Someone, someone calling me? No, yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Ooh, how annoying is that? All right. $100 for a complete sharpening system for chisels and plane blades with 8x3 surfaces. And by the way, if it helps, I do already have my strop. Thanks, guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so why can he not just use a two-sided water stone? That's what I was going to go to. Yeah. Like a really good quality two-sided water stone should not be, you know, should not break the bank. Uh, if he needs a flattening system, he could find, you know, just a, a sheet of sandpaper, 220 grit sandpaper uh, for the occasion that he actually does need to do that flattening. Put that on a flat surface, call it done. So I don't know, did, did, did we miss a detail in his explanation as to why one of these classic like 3,000 one side, 8,000 on the other side, uh, why one of those wouldn't work for him? Seems like it should. I don't know. Well, and where did this scary sharp thing go wrong? I mean, maybe because he's <laughs> buying his sandpaper at the home home. Uh, what do you call it? The auto body place. Maybe it's just they put a bit of a markup on that stuff because it shouldn't be yeah, that expensive, so, right? Yeah, but I mean, you buy a lot of sandpaper for a hundred dollars. That's going to last you a long, long time. He just doesn't um, like the idea that what 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 did he say? Like five sheets for ten bucks. Yeah, he yeah. Like I mean, it's certainly it's going to catch up on you over time. Yeah. Scary sharp, I think, is an intro thing, but yeah, I mean. Shoot, you can get decent, you know, you don't have to go and buy Shapton ceramic stones or, you know, I mean, Kingstone is a really good brand and they're not that expensive. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think you have to have, you know, 1,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000, 8,000 grit no, stones. Two grits. You know, I mean, 
I've been running on 1,000 and 8,000 for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never had a problem. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the thing that the single stone is not going to allow him to do is shape anything. You know, if he has to reset bevels or or fix a nick or something like that, that's where a grinder comes into play. Or mm-hmm. in some instances, people use really, really um, coarse sandpaper. So you're going back to scary sharp. But that should be like 1% of your sharpening, yeah. right? When, when you know what hits the fan, you've got to fix something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the honing, the day in and day out, a single stone. And he's already got a strop, so he's in good shape. Yeah, 24, 24.29 on Amazon for a king... 1,000, 6,000 grit combination whetstone. Are that cheap now? 24.29. God, those used to be like 40-something dollars. Yeah. Now he's going to need a way to flatten that. So he's going to need something. If he's already got the float glass for like the scary sharp he was using. Yep. Is that, I mean, water stones, they cut fast because they're friable. They break apart. So it will go out of flat very, very quickly. So he's going to need something to keep it flat. Um, sandpaper so, that's all he needs yeah, yeah. I mean he's, he spent $24 so he's still got $75 to find a way to flatten it or he could buy some sandpaper for 5 bucks and then send the $70 to the three of us that's right perfect right. for answering the question we saved them yeah. so much money it's, it's really the right thing to do right. <laughs> uh, let's see so we got another one here uh, this is from Pete regarding wax dang it where's the stupid play there it is hey what dudes Pete in Oregon. Just a little quick kickback on waxing your uh, machinery. Uh, so unbeknownst to myself, I've been doing a an experiment for about 10 years since I've owned a Bosch, uh, one of the job site table saws. And uh, it turns out it has an aluminum uh, table. So I never figured that I needed to worry too much about putting any wax on it because it's never going to rust. And it, I also keep it inside, so it's not actually in a job site type situation uh, for its life. So um, I was working on a project with a buddy, building some uh, houses for our friendly neighborhood crime fighters, the bats, and uh, building a bat house that requires a a tiny saw kerf about every half inch. And the boards we were doing were about like two feet by two feet roughly. And it took quite a while to carve all the grooves in in that uh, board with a table saw. And so about halfway through the one hour or two hour stint that we did these, um, I got the great idea, hey, maybe I'll throw some wax on this, um, even though I never have before since I haven't ever worried about it. And wow, did it really speed up, you know, the job, just reducing the friction just a little bit. So just kind of uh, some more support to the uh, waxing of your tools and equipment, even if you don't think you need it, uh, it can really help you out on some other long projects you don't realize. So uh, thanks so much. Love the show and catch you later. Very cool. So, you know, it's funny. I, I, just before I got this voicemail, I'd seen something on, I don't know, Instagram where someone was doing a bat enclosure of some kind. And I saw this whole, the curfing that they do. So I'm, I'm looking it up. Is that so that they can climb on it or hang on it? Like what's the, the reason I think for so. Yeah, this, I guess that's how they get their little claws on it. Yeah, probably, I mean, they probably. probably could still do it without the curves, but probably it just keeps them from like tearing it apart. Yeah, they're more likely to uh, to go there as well if it's if it's easy to climb. Well, that's interesting. Okay, I learn something new every day. Uh, okay, so question from Felix here. 
Hello, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. I'm a science teacher for young adults in a high school in Montreal, Canada. For the coming year, I decided that I would start teaching woodworking, and the school's principal agreed to give me a classroom that I will turn into a hand tool oriented workshop. The room in question is an empty gymnasium. Although exi exciting, this adventure represents many challenges, one of which is to find free sources for usable tools and workshop benches and accessories. Ideally, I would have the students build the benches themselves, but still, I'd need a big stash of wood to do so. I've solicited some local shops, some of which have been generous enough to offer me free money to buy stuff from them. Other people in my surrounding have donated old tools and I bought some tools with my own money on the used market as well. Still, furnishing a workshop for 25 students with an almost inexistent budget is a struggle. I believe in this project and I know that amongst the many young men and women that I will have the opportunity to train in using hand tools, some will develop new passions and interests. So I guess my question goes as follows. Can you think of any resources that I might have missed? Or better yet, can you think of a way any of you guys could help my cause directly? Thank you for your help and for not quitting. Well, I don't have a great answer for this. I did want to play it, though, because I'm sure we have some shop teachers that listen to this who might have tackled this kind of problem themselves. So maybe uh, if you do have advice for Felix, uh, shoot that on over with a voicemail or email and we'll read it on the show. Uh, but off the top of your head, guys, any suggestions for them? Yeah. Um, if there are any museums, uh, especially like living history type museums in the area or like old farm museums and things like that, those places become a magnet for tool donations. Um, when I was working at the Stepping Stone Museum, there was not a week that went by where someone showed up with a cardboard box from grandpa's basement with a bunch of tools in it. And they would drop them off and say, hey, you know, you guys can probably use this. And what ended up happening is they just got set into cold storage. The point where we have a barn at the Stone Museum that has more than like, I don't know, 20,000 items in it. Mm -hmm. And there's just no possible way that they can all be displayed. And a lot of times the museums themselves are, are like, looking red, looking to get rid of some of this stuff, but they can't just like, you know, I want to just throw it away or whatever. So in many instances, you can actually do, um, some of them will, will do, a, especially to like a school like this, they'll do a donation. Um, but a lot of times there needs to be something that changes hands to kind of make it official or whatever. So sometimes it can be, here's a dollar and you walk out with a bunch of stuff and we've actually done this successfully. And I've seen this done several other museums the point we even started exchanging stuff between museums so it, it is a possibility it's just a matter of whether or not such things like that you know are, are at all close by in the montreal area or somewhere um you know within the same province ideally mm -hmm. so that's one thought yeah huh. that's a cool idea um there's also i guess like local wood clubs it never hurts to just be friendly to be on a, a sort of friendly basis with them because uh, people have extra tools sometimes. And if they know that there's a local program that could benefit from this and every, the word gets out, almost everyone has something in their shop. They don't totally need. And if they find the, like a good person to give it to, then boom, you got a great outlet for that. And everybody feels good about it because there's uh, young kids learning how to do woodworking. So, um, talk to local woodworking associations, let them know that you're out there, you're accepting donations and you never know something might come up if they mention it to their membership. Or go to Matt's house, 
That's pretty close to Canada, right? To Montreal? No. <laughs> no? Okay. No. I think you might be closer to me than I am to Montreal. I don't know anything about Canada. Or geography. <laughs> or geography, yeah. So, <laughs> it's a tough one for me. Look, I know where New Jersey is. I could tell you where California is. Everything else is just a blur. <laughs> That's about all I know. Uh, okay, so we got one more here from Leroy. Hi, this is Leroy from Sydney, Australia. I'd just like to thank you guys for quitting. Jerks. <laughs> so I guess that's in, in response to us being a little delayed getting the show back up. So sorry about that, Leroy. Relax, oh, man. Oh, it's fun. You're in Australia. I mean, everything's got to be going great for you, right? Australia's awesome. What do you have to complain about? Drinking coffee here. Sorry. Uh, so what, what's our time looking like? I think we're okay. Uh, let's just do, um, let's do one email real quick. So I got an email here from Christopher. He says, uh, have any of you thought about building a tool chest like the H O Studley tool chest? If you're not familiar with it, it's an absolute work of art. So look it up. First of all, it's amazing. I think the first time I saw this was on an episode of the new Yankee workshop. That's how I became aware of it. And it truly is a work of art, but I actually, uh, my opinion of it is while I find it very beautiful, I also find it to be incredibly unuseful. <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? Like it's yes. so cool. I'm glad you said that. But I mean, maybe yeah, I feel like it's almost sacrilege to criticize the Studley tool chest, but it has so many tools packed within a very, very confined space, just masterfully nested within one another so well as to be completely impractical. Uh, and here's why. Number one, it's nice to have a little space between your tools. It's nice to not have a tool that's buried be- behind like six layers of other crap. Like, oh, that's right. I need that thing that's on the bottom, you know? So this thing is like an amazing work of art that I just find to be incredibly not useful. So I would want a bigger tool chest. I want my tools to have a little room to breathe. And also tools break and then they get replaced or you upgrade something and it may not be the exact same size as the other ones. And you need to be able to put that in your tool chest, right? So that's why if I were ever to do this, it would just be an academic experiment, uh, an actual truly useful tool chest. Like here's a great thing, Matt, you got one on the horizon, right? I do. I do. Are you going to make it like the Studley tool chest? Just completely dense with tools? Ain't nobody got time for that. Who got time for that? (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. Sounds like a terrible way to spend like three months of just planning out where (laughs) it's going to go and prototyping. But what about the mother of pearl inlays? No. No? No, Okay. Well, in my issue is... The layout of my tool chest has changed no fewer than four times since <laughs> right. I built it. It's, yeah. just, it's just the way it goes. Like yeah. as you work with stuff, you realize, man, I wish that tool was more accessible. And then you move it and and put it out there. And the the studly tool chest is like Tetris. Like everything is so perfectly fit together. There's no way there's any flexibility built into that. Yeah. So, you know, to to Christopher's question, have I ever thought about building it? Yeah, I built it. It's over my right shoulder right now. But, you know, it's it's not even close to the work of art that the Studley tool chest is, but it's really functional. So yeah. on Studley. Yeah, it's oh kind boy. of a ooh, that's rough. Oh, oh boy. Them's fighting oh words. Boy. Uh, You know, a tool chest is kind of an evolving piece of shop furniture, right? And if you build it to the specs of something like the Studley tool chest, that cannot evolve, you know? And and here's the other thing. It's heavy. You know, like that's that's really, really heavy um, to put that thing on a wall. 
I can't remember how much yeah. the studly tool chest itself actually weighs, but I think it takes a couple people to get that thing, especially if it's loaded. That's oh yeah. Ridiculous. So, uh, okay. Well, I think it's just gonna, I think that's gonna do it. I don't, I got two more questions here, but let's skip those. We'll, we'll go we'll get back on track. We'll have a, a Patreon thing up for new questions next week. It will be current instead of talking about old stuff. Uh, I think it'll be good. Um, so yeah. How about, uh, you give them the contact information, Shannon, and we'll get out of here. Okay. okay. Well, we're so happy to talk to you again. We missed you all terribly. So please send us stuff to talk about. We can't do the show without you. So if you are so inclined, use the fun voice memo app, record something that you want to talk to us about and send it to Wood Talk, uh, Wood Talk online, Wood Talk <laughs> at Gmail. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> Whatever that is, it's uh, woodtalkonline at gmail.com. There you, you go. Know, apparently, I, I have to read this or I just can't. Well, if do you get it, the email so. address wrong, things break yeah. down. Yeah. Well, it's the Matt Vanderlist in me. I have to actually <laughs> have it in front of me to read it or it's just never going to come out. Yeah, right? exactly. So, so, anyway, yes, send those, those recorded things to woodtalkonline at gmail.com or you can use the contact form at woodtalkshow.com slash contact. And yeah, that's kind of it. That's how you contact us. That is is how you do it. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next time. See ya. See ya, bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.